0: Welcome to A Dog Called Diversity, a podcast from The Culture Ministry, where we explore the themes of diversity, equity and inclusion through sharing stories of personal and powerful lived experiences, including how people have found their feet and developed their career in diversity and inclusion. We are so glad you are listening in, and if you need some help or support with your diversity and inclusion work, go to www.thecultureministry.com for more information. Juliette Short is an Auckland-based lawyer and mother of two girls. Her eldest daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 3, which is very young. Most children are diagnosed between ages 7 and 11. In conversation with Lisa Mulligan, Juliette discussed her daughter's experience with type 1 diabetes, the challenges of managing insulin and blood sugars in such a young child, the importance of technology and education in making it easier, and the need for inclusivity and understanding from others in caring for those with invisible disabilities. Here they are Lisa and Juliet.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Dog Called Diversity. I have the most incredible guest today that i only met fairly recently many of you know who follow me that i am on a quest to meet new people in auckland and make friends and in doing that i joined auckland executive club which is our club that brings together women once a month to network and to learn from an amazing speaker and i was lucky enough to meet our guest today at one of those dinners her name is Juliet short Welcome to the podcast, Juliet. Thank you so much, Lisa. Yay! Um, I think you're maybe my second. You're my second Kiwi, which is really nice. Okay, that's very fun. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So um,
2: I am a lawyer and mum of two little girls, four and six my oldest daughter grace lives with type 1 diabetes and i think we got chatting about this at the dinner where we, we first met and i was so excited to hear about all the work you're doing in the diversity and inclusion space to just help create um, a better and fairer world
1: yeah it was um really interesting when juliet started to tell me about her daughter i feel like diabetes has as a disease has been around me and my family my whole life. My my grandmother's sisters and brothers had, um, I think two, three had type one diabetes, two were diagnosed and were on insulin. And I believe one passed away because she wasn't picked up as having the disease. And uh, growing up, I had a boyfriend who was diagnosed with type type one diabetes in his teens. And so I'm very sensitive to that ketone smell that if you have type 1 diabetes and you're not under, you know, being treated with insulin, that, that that smell that you create. And type 2 diabetes is in my family as well. My mother has it and I feel like I'm heading in that direction. And while that's a completely different disease, um yeah, it, I feel like it surrounds me, but what's really interesting about Juliet's daughter is she was diagnosed incredibly young. Um so I wondered if you might start by telling us a bit about when you knew something's wrong.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And Lisa, I know it's so nice, Um, you know, the first time we chatted about this and you yeah. know so much about type 1 diabetes.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> so our daughter was diagnosed when she was three. The most common age to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes is between about 7 and 11, I think. So for us, it was a real surprise. And obviously, I, we knew what diabetes was, but we didn't have a family history. So for us, it was really out of the blue. Um We'd known she was unwell for quite a while. There's probably three to six months we'd been looking at her. And, you know, you just have that parental instinct. We've been saying to each other something that's just not right here, but we don't know what it is. And I took her to her doctor who did a whole lot of tests, but not like glucose because she was just so young. And she looked so healthy in other respects. They, They didn't think to do that test. And then about a week later, my husband was Googling why is my child so thirsty because those classic early symptoms of type 1 diabetes is one of the most obvious ones is just being really thirsty all the time. And she was so thirsty and type 1 diabetes came up. And so we we got um, the glucose test done. It came back high and then it was straight to Starship
1: from there. Wow. And Starship's one of the hospitals in Auckland, is that right? Yes. Yeah,
2: so Starship is the children's National Children's Hospital, which is in Auckland.
1: Right. So diagnosed incredibly young. Um, so lucky that you were paying attention to that thirsty piece, because um, I'm sure if she would presented as a, as a 10-year-old with that, they would have been straight onto it, but not as a three-year-old. So So what happened from there? Like you take her to hospital, she's got high blood sugar. What happened then? So
2: we moved really quickly through ED. Um, We'd had someone call ahead and they knew we were coming and we knew what it was at that stage. So I guess that made it a bit easier for doctors to break the news to us that she had this lifelong health condition that we were going to have to learn to manage. And we were admitted to Starship and we stayed there for a week. And basically that week is all about education. It's like type 1 diabetes boot camp for families. So you'd get up in the morning. You have your ward round. You have your appointment with the nurse specialist, where you learn all about what type one diabetes is, how to use insulin, how to check blood sugars. Your child is monitored around the clock until you learn to do it yourself. And they have other services like you meet with the dietitian, you meet with the child psychologist. So it's just um, a really intense education program. And then when they feel that you know what you're doing, you, you're, you're allowed to go home. And for the first three weeks after we went home, we had daily check-ins with the nurse specialist, an absolutely amazing team of nurses up at Sasha. We were just so lucky with the care we got there. Uh, the, the endocrine team there is just amazing. Um, and then we sort of gradually weaned ourselves off those phone calls. We just contacted them when we
1: needed. So when she was so young, what was, what was the routine like? Like once you were out of hospital, I'm guessing you had to give her insulin injections.
2: Yeah. So the, the two main things we were doing to manage her levels is firstly monitoring what her blood sugar was doing and um, the standard publicly funded system for that is a fingerprint blood test, but you have to do it so often because her levels can change really quickly. You can go from being too high to too low in yeah. under half an hour in her case. So, yeah, that's a lot of finger breaks. Um, We were lucky. We discovered early on that there's a device called a continuous glucose monitor, which is like just a tiny little chip that you pop on the back of her arm, and that continually monitors her blood glucose and sends a little reading to our phone every five minutes. So you've got a live stream of data, and it's also got an alarm system. So if she is about to go too high or she's about to go too low All the phones in the house start beeping um, and we can do something about it before there's a problem. Yeah. So that's an absolutely amazing system. But I think one thing that I really struggled um, to reconcile in the early days is that the CGMs, it it, it is absolutely life-changing technology. It makes such a difference. Um, And it's let us have a much more normal family life and a less stressful experience of this than we would have otherwise. But they are very expensive and they're not publicly funded. So we're incredibly lucky that we have jobs that mean that when we heard about this, we thought, right, we'll we'll just buy it. But that is not the reality for every New Zealand family. And, you know, every 10 days when we're getting our new CGM out of the box, I just think this is so unfair that we've got this and other people don't. This isn't a nice to have. It's it's essential.
1: How much are they, like? Every, bo- every box, how much?
2: <laughs> if you can commit to a subscription, they're about $5,000 a year. Oh, wow. So, so you've basically got to find $100 every week out of the budget. And as well as that, you have to have a compatible device, like a phone to run it through, which stays close to her and picks up those Bluetooth readings and then sends the data out to our phones. Wow, that's a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. And so what, what do families do if they can't afford that? there are some families who just have to go without and it's really hard i'm connected to a facebook group of parents of type 1 diabetic kids all over new zealand and we're always jumping online to ask each other questions it's a lovely it's an incredibly supportive group and they take such good care of each other but there are some families who this is just out of reach for and others who are doing you know whatever extra work and foregoing whatever else they'd like to have to try and fund these because it makes such a difference
1: wow when you first brought your daughter home from hospital did she have a a continuous um monitor at that time or were you doing the finger pricks for a while
2: no she did by then we heard about them about day 3 or 4 i think our nurse practitioner mentioned it and introduced us to a mum in the next ward who had one and you know, it's a delicate conversation for them because they know how important this is. And you can actually um, set up the data to share with the Starship team so they can they can see what's going on and provide you input. And as soon as we heard about it and saw what it did, we said, we, we have to have one of those. So by the time we went home, we, we had a CGM on her.
1: Oh, brilliant. So tell me what that means in terms of, I guess, her diet and being able to keep her blood sugar between the right levels.
2: Yeah, so look, I mean, with diet, we always had a healthy diet as a family. So
1: the dietitian didn't recommend many
2: changes for us, we have to naturally just slowly gravitated towards a lower carbohydrate diet, we're not low, low, low carb or keto. But we have a lot of lower carb options, because it makes it much, much easier to manage. Mm -hmm. So the CGM, Is not a substitute for a healthy diet Um, but it just makes it a lot easier to understand what's going on and from an education perspective for us and candy teachers at the time it really helped us to learn about the impact of different types of food on her blood glucose like we find that if you give her an ice block um, it would kick in way before um, the insulin would get there and she'd tend to go pretty high so you need to give the insulin for us and it's different for everyone like a yeah good sort of 15 minutes before she touches that ice block whereas with ice cream that kicks in a bit slower so there're just all these little things that we learned from watching the impact of different foods um on the CGM
1: okay and does she have how many injections does she have a day then for insulin oh well i mean initially when we were starting out
2: it was 4 to 8 um she's actually on a she's publicly it it is a lot <laughs> she's been an absolute legend about it i mean i think the thing with medical conditions you never really know how resilient your children are until something goes wrong and we are so so proud of her she's been absolutely amazing through all of this i think while it was hard having her diagnosed so young i think the, the one silver lining to it is that she doesn't remember anything different yeah really? You know, after a couple of weeks, she couldn't. I don't think she remembered what it was like before then. So she is absolutely used to it. She's an, just a star. I don't know many grown-ups who could put up with injections as well as she does. Um, We're very lucky. She qualified for a funded insulin pump, so she now um, wears an insulin pump, and that's how she—that's um, how she gets her insulin. And that also talks to the CGM okay. and makes some treatment decisions without our input. It's got this really clever function where the cgm predicts that she's going to be too high or too low it will tell the pump and the pump will automatically adjust the insulin it's giving to account for that which means we don't have to touch the touch the pump or we'll give insulin as many times a day and just lets her get on with life a bit more
1: which is really nice that's amazing yeah. you've got all the tech and you're very lucky because you can afford to have all the tech um as well as the publicly funded um pump
2: yeah we are we are so lucky
1: and. Um, yeah, I
2: think I mean we've just really embraced the technology with this because the technology that's out there is incredible. and makes such a difference to your day-to-day life, and also, you know, how well you can manage your numbers with that technology. It makes the management a lot easier. So we've got there's a little um, chart, and it's been like you know those little sort of fire danger charts you see on the side of the yeah. road. They're sort of green, and then it gets yellow and orange and red. There's one yeah. of those that. Uh, it is based off a blood test called an hba1c which tells you fundamentally what is your risk of long term complications from diabetes and with this technology we've had her we've we've kept it consistently in the
1: green zone i'm not convinced we could have done that without the tech without the tech wow that's incredible i wanted to know a bit about you know can she i guess this podcast is about diversity and equity and inclusion How has having, I guess it's a disability, an invisible disability. Most people wouldn't Mm -hmm. know your daughter has diabetes. Maybe they see the things on her arm and are are curious. But what is the challenge, I guess, for her and for other people with type one diabetes?
2: I think describing it as an invisible disability is 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 bang on. Grace is she is socially and academically completely normal. She loves her sport. She's just like any other kid, but you've got to be constantly managing it to keep things normal. I think for other people, the thing that helps to make it normal for her is if the people that are caring for her, so both in kindy and school setting, just embrace learning about it. And that's one thing where we've been really lucky. Her kindy was so caring and so inclusive, and the teachers just threw themselves into understanding what type 1 diabetes is. How do we manage this? How do we give her a normal experience? Honestly, I did wonder when she was diagnosed if we'd need to take her out of kindy, which would have been really sad because she loved her kindy and she had a neat little group of friends there. Um, but she actually, the day she got out of hospital, um, I thought, you know, we were so tired. We thought, you know, never mind screen time limits. We'll all just snuggle up on the couch and watch Disney all day. But um, she said, well, there's a disco at kindy today. I want to go to kindy and go to the disco. <laughs> <laughs> so we That's just like, so tired. <laughs> yeah, I'll <laughs> say, you know, she wanted to be there. So we got into training them. I stayed on site with them for two weeks until they were wow. really comfortable. And, and they got on with it. And I think their attitude... And their approach to it, they didn't see it as a problem. They saw it as something to learn about so that she could be included and have that normal experience just like anyone else. And it's been the same with school. Um, We chose a school for her that had experience
1: in uh,
2: managing type 1 diabetes, and they have just been unbelievable. They've done such a good job. But it's that willingness to be educated, to learn about it, and to see it not as sort of something complicated or scary, but just something you need you you get educated about it and then you feel comfortable dealing with it
1: yeah and then you know yeah. what to do if something does go wrong you've got a plan right yeah yeah uh, yeah and and they know they've got
2: backup we've got that live stream of data if we can see something happening um you know we we can help them text them some instructions but but fundamentally i think people are willing to be educated about it and willing to ask questions It makes a huge difference yeah. um in our case, while type one is invisible, we've been really open with Grace's friends and parents, and we do, now that she's a bit older, she's six now, we talk to her about that, but she's really comfortable taking an open approach, and I think that helps, because if people know about things, then, you know, there's no mystery, there's nothing to talk about, there's nothing scary, yeah. and we've had some really... Um, yeah, some really good support because of that. You know, there's a little tradition at her school uh, where the kids bring a little cupcake or something to share with the class on their birthday. And I've sort of had messages from other parents the night before saying, oh, "I'm sending some cupcakes. What can I? What can I do? What do I need to do so that so that she can have some too?" And I mean, in that case, absolutely fine. We just need to know uh, what they're sending in advance so that we can plan the insulin for it. Um, there's a great book by Sonia Sotomayor. Have you heard of her? Can I tell you about her? Oh, please tell me. Yeah. yeah. So, Sonia Sotomajor is a US Supreme Court judge, and she's lived with type 1 diabetes since she was seven. And she was diagnosed so back in the day before any of the fancy technology we've got um, was available, and just lived this incredible life working her way up to being a judge. And she's written two really beautiful books. So, she's written um, a memoir called My Beloved World. And one of the nicest messages I got from my friends after Grace was diagnosed was, It was a really short message and it just said, you shall read Sonia Sotomayor's autobiography and it will inspire you. (laughs) I said, "Okay," so I ordered it online and I read it and it's fantastic. I actually ordered a couple of spare copies so I can lend it to anyone who might be interested. Um, And she's also written a children's book called Just Ask. And it's a really nice book. It talks about a whole lot of different medical conditions that kids live with or devices they might use to to help them, you know, move around the world with whatever condition they're living with. And it basically says, if you've got a question, just ask. Nice. And I think that's a really nice message because while I mean, you want to get on with life and you don't want to talk about these things all the time. But I think Especially with kids, if they feel empowered to ask a question, then they and they understand it better. I think they're more inclined to, to be inclusive, to be supportive, and there's there's no mystery. Yeah. And you get all kinds of questions about type one diabetes, things like, you know, is it contagious? I mean, of course it's not. But can you imagine if the child was just thinking this and hadn't asked the question? They'd feel worried, yeah. and rightly so. You know, of of course it isn't um can she eat this can she eat that and I think yeah. the book um has a really good message. of if, if there's something something you're
1: wondering about just ask the question I love it I love it and kids don't care they'll go they'll ask a question they'll get the answer and go oh okay and away they go off playing again it's not a big deal yeah exactly yeah is she um oh let me start let me start this question differently I've noticed with, with my son Aiden, who's vision impaired, you know, as, you know, I've had to go and advocate for him at Kindy and at school, you know, like what you had to do where you spent two weeks at Kindy with your daughter. I've done various things to support Aiden in the classroom to make sure that he has accommodations so that he can see well enough and access the learning materials well enough. Um, but it started to, well, it has shifted for me where I'm now saying to him, you need to advocate for yourself. You need to tell the teachers what you need to be successful in the classroom. How is your daughter going? She's still really little, but, but does she understand that yet? She is doing a lot for herself
2: already. And two things we've done the last few years, we've been looking at, so at the start of each school year, We do a couple of training sessions for her school team for that year, so her teacher, Mm -hmm. her teacher aide, and anyone else who might be in the classroom who needs to know it. And as part of that, we look at what she can start doing for herself. So we have goals for her. So Mm – Last year, she learned to use her insulin pump herself, so she can, I put little notes on the top of her lunchbox, how much carb is in, is in your lunch or your snacks, and she can input that data into the insulin pump with an adult watching, because you, know, you don't want to get a number wrong there. Um, so that was one of her goals for last year. One thing she would love to do at the moment is she would absolutely love to catch the school bus. But before we can put her on the school bus, we need to know that she can, if she, if her blood sugar is low, she can manage that without a grown up. Yeah. So what we're working on this year is recognizing when she's low and going and getting herself a juice box right away. So that is one of our goals for this year. And we've also had words each year. So last year we talked about empowerment. So we wanted her to feel like she could start taking responsibility for things herself, start doing the insulin on her um, insulin pump um, and just, you know, just generally start taking a bit more control because it is much nicer to do things for yourself than to have things done to you, you know, and... Completely. And she's an independent kid. She isn't in free spirit and she, she wants to be able to do this herself. So it's just her. what can we empower her to do? This year we're moving more into responsibility, so having things that are her responsibility to do. So, for example, to check the carb count on her lunchbox, get her pump out, find a grown-up to supervise her and and bolus, which is give herself insulin on the insulin pump.
1: That's pretty good for a six-year-old. That's amazing. It is, right?
2: yeah she can also do a
1: blood test herself
2: although sometimes she prefers to have someone else do it but yeah and I think that's really helped you know psychologically that's very empowering for her to be to be doing things for herself Um, and the other thing we're starting to look at now that we've got our feet under the desk because honestly the first 12 to 18 months after diagnosis there's just so much to get your head around you sort of feel like you're at head capacity yeah pretty much the whole time um, but now that we've got our feet under the desk we're also looking at what can what can we give back and what can we do because I think that's also very empowering for her to give back so last year she ran the Auckland Kids Marathon to raise money Aww. for Starship and that was a little thank you to her endocrine team of did it in their honor um, and she did really well and she got a real kick out of that um, she's fast too the training sessions are hard work for me <laughs> um, to try and keep up with her um yeah but that was really nice and she was she featured in an article in the education gazette earlier in the year on type 1 diabetes and what schools can do to to support students uh, living with that Brilliant. so those are the sort of things we're starting to get involved in um I love yeah that. there's a, also a campaign on at the moment hashtag is cgms for all and that's a campaign to support public funding for continuous glucose monitors so we are doing you know whatever we can to support that campaign because i think one of my dreams for the type one diabetic community generally is that pharma will at some point fund cgms i would love to see the technology that we have funded for every person living with type 1 diabetes because I think it makes such a difference just to -to day-to-day life and also you know long-term long-term risk of complications
1: yeah I was thinking the the cost of the continuous glucose monitors would surely be offset by people who have complications and long-term health issues because of diabetes so yeah
2: absolutely Yeah. yeah And they are funded in a lot of other countries. Oh, which countries? The UK and Australia are
1: both funding them now for young people living with type 1. Wow. Well, let's hope New Zealand gets that funding soon. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. I wanted to finish, Juliet, with maybe um, what would be your advice to parents who've got children who've recently been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes?
2: you know the one thing I'd want to tell them is it does get easier it takes time but it does get easier Mm -hmm. I asked the nurse I think when we were three days in I said when is this going to feel easier and she said look honestly six months to two years and she was right but but once once you are used to it and you've got your routines going it does start um, feeling easier I would also say if you can. Um, sort of take the time to get your head around everything to do but I, I really accept that I come from a position of great privilege saying that my workplaces um, I've had amazing support from work to deal with this I took a five-week leave of absence when Grace was first diagnosed and then just came back to work gradually um, you know I had days where I'd be doing something that someone needed needed done and I'd get a call from Kendi saying something's not quite right we need you and I would just have to leave the office and run and deal with it Um, I've been incredibly well supported you know if you were lucky enough to have that support take it share with people what you're going through and, and hopefully you can have that time and space to deal with it
1: you know I've just realized one of the things we haven't talked about is the seriousness of type 1 diabetes and I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. I mean, what are the ramifications if if the condition is not managed well?
2: Oh, I, look, if if it's not managed well, and but, you know, I think I've focused really hard in the last few years on managing well. I've read yeah. every book I could <laughs> I could find about it. Um, I mean, not managing it well, if, you know, firstly, day to day, if you're running, your blood sugar is high, you don't feel very well. You can feel quite sick and lethargic and it's hard to concentrate. Um, if your blood sugars go low and that can happen quickly, if you have, you know, too much insulin for the amount of food you're eating and there are oh, like 36 different factors that impact on blood sugar, it's not simple. Some days it feels as much art as science. Blood sugar's going too low can be a life-threatening emergency if you don't get onto it really quickly. So I mean, when my daughter goes low, we'd be looking to get some fast-acting glucose into her within five minutes. So don't address it and go too low. You can end up unconscious. And long-term, the cost of getting it wrong is really high. People can end up with um, blindness, damage to limbs or amputations, um, kidney damage. There's a, there's a whole raft of things, and really this is something I've just tried to put out of my mind and focus on managing it really well but yeah yeah, as you say the the long-term cost of not managing it well is really high it's just
1: yeah and that's why I guess putting the control with people who have the disease with them with some technology and getting funding for like glucose monitors (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it, it really helps. I mean, one of the big things the CGM does is because it has
2: that alarm system, we sleep. Before that, you'd be up all night, um, finger pricking so that you could see what her levels were doing, make sure she wasn't too high, make sure she wasn't too low. And that just gives you that much less headspace to work with during the day. But because we're getting sleep, we have more headspace and we can focus on the things like, you know, how can we make up. A- making more of a lot and what can we do to provide better support and education to school and what can we do for the type one community like we have we have extra headspace for those things um, which we wouldn't we weren't sleeping yeah. you know this being a parent you know those days we're
1: sleeping we just, is, so yeah, good. Sleep is everything <laughs> sleep is so important <laughs> I used to have chats to myself about you know if I'd had a terrible night's sleep because I was up with kids that I wasn't going to die I was just tired (laughs) (laughs) to try and get through the next day. Drink a lot of coffee and try and get through. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Juliette. I think there will be people listening who maybe don't know much about type 1 diabetes, and you've done a great job of explaining it and sharing your daughter's story. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me along today, Lisa. I really appreciate it.
0: At The Culture Ministry, we know how challenging and lonely it can be working in diversity and inclusion and how progress is often slow. You might be just getting started in diversity and inclusion or you might be on your way. The Culture Ministry is here to help you with your diversity and inclusion progress. Go to www.thecultureministry.com to learn more. If you enjoyed this episode and maybe learned something, Please share with your friends on social media. Give a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. This makes it easier for others to find a dog called Diversity.